This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Norm Rule is one of our country's leading experts on the Middle East in general and on Iran in particular. Norm was a career CIA operations officer and spent the last several years of his career as the Iran mission manager for the entire U.S. intelligence community. Norm has been on our show before, and today he joins us to look back on Iran's response to the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is an episode of Intelligence Matters Declassified, spy stories from the officers who were there. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Norm, thank you for joining us. It's great to have you back on Intelligence Matters. My pleasure, Michael. So, Norm, you know that that this is going to be an episode in our series of spy stories that we're not going to so much talk about what's going on today in the world, but we're going to look back at a specific time, at a specific situation, and talk about that. And that's going to be the Iranian response to the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 and the U.S. response to that response across really two administrations, both the Bush and Obama administrations. So with that in mind, Norm, let me let me start with some context. Norm, where were you in terms of jobs in terms of responsibilities to the extent that you can say in the run-up to the Iraq war? And where were you in the several years after the war? 
by the late 1990s, I had served in a handful of Near East locations where I worked on Iraqi issues. Uh, at headquarters during that same time frame, I managed CIA's human operations against Iran's political, security, economic, and foreign policy targets. I did not do WMD during this period. During the period immediately prior to the uh, invasion, I was a station chief in the Middle East uh, at a location where we focused almost exclusively on Al-Qaeda, Iran, and Iraq. And that location also put me in direct and routine contact with our senior most military leaders in the region. In the immediate, ap during and immediately after the invasion, I led CIA's interagency Iran task force. And then what about, what about after that, you know, 2000, be, kind of between 2003 and, you know, the end of the decade, where, where were you? Following that period, I served as a senior manager in the Near East Division, I was again assigned overseas to another Near East location, and then I became the national intelligence manager for Iran, a position I held for uh, more than eight years, and that put me in routine contact, almost daily contact, with multiple uh, officials from the Bush, uh, Obama, and indeed Trump administration. So, Norm, you you have deep expertise, deep experience in the region, and you had that at the time of the Iraq war. As you know better than anyone, CIA does not recommend a policy, but its officers certainly have personal views on policy. You can't help having those views, right? Doing the job. And I want to just wonder what you thought about President Bush's decision to invade Iraq, not in retrospect, right? Not, not 17 years later, but what did you think at the time? So at the time I had been steeped in the horrors of the Iraqi regime's action against its own people. I had collected, sometimes personally, uh, dozens of dramatic and corroborated reports about how the regime's leadership tortured its own people uh, in, some of the, in, in a very cruel fashion. In terms of terrorism, I monitored um, Saddam's relationship with Palestinian terrorists and Arab terrorists. There was no question he supported Carlos the Jackal, Abu Nidal, but the connections to al-Qaeda never seemed deep. My, as I said earlier, my focus was not WMD. Um, and this said, while I was not aware of any nucle covert nuclear weapons program, I closely followed and we produced much information on Iran's, Iraq's aggressive efforts to frustrate the UN nuclear inspectors. When the war began, I had no information uh, that Iraq was building a nuclear weapon or working in any significant way with al-Qaeda. At the time, I wondered why containment was not a, a viable solution, and also felt that had uh, a nuclear weapons program existed, uh, uh, we would have seen more evidence, and uh, I might have uncovered more evidence in, in my own operational activity. But my assumption at the time was that the information was held in uh, compartments to which I did not have access. So you were, your, your, your general feeling was, maybe we should wait a while here. I had no information to indicate that the imperative for an invasion was uh, as dire as it was uh, stated. But again, I presumed I just didn't have access to that data. But the data I did have said that Saddam and his coterie, especially his sons, were among the most evil human beings I had ever encountered in my, in my life. 
and uh, uh, that uh, their their activities uh, in the region were going to be aggressive for years to come. I just had no evidence of an ongoing nuclear weapons program or a deep relationship with al-Qaeda. Gotcha. So, Norm, I want to break Iran's reaction to the invasion um, of Iraq down into two questions, kind of the, the strategic and, and the tactical. And on the strategic side, I want to ask you, Two questions. So the first is, how did the Iranians at the time think about the potential strategic implications for them of the invasion, both the, the potential upsides for them and the potential downsides for them? How did they think about it? That's a great question. So the Iranians had several issues to consider. First, the United States had formed a robust and uh, a very strong international coalition around the idea of destroying a rogue regime that was attempting to build a nuclear weapon and also supporting al-Qaeda. And we should all recall that during that very period, Iran was indeed constructing a secret nuclear weapons program, and it also had provided consequential support to al-Qaeda and routinely boasted of its support to Hezbollah. So in essence, the reasons we were going to war against Iraq seemed rather applicable to Iran itself. Second, the the U.S. military and its partners had annihilated the Iraqi military in a matter of a few weeks. And our ability to destroy so quickly and so decisively one of the region's most powerful and experienced military machines one that had indeed done so much damage to to Iran itself, was a tremendous shock to Iran's leadership. Throughout that period, I think think it's important to to recall that U.S. forces seemed, if you just looked at a map, perfectly positioned to invade Iran itself. We had no intention to do so. We had no plans to do so. We'd conducted no exercises to do so. But if you looked at a map in 2004, we had about 20,000 troops on Iran's eastern border and about 140, 145 troops in, in Iraq. All of these factors compelled Iran to, to rethink its nuclear weaponization strategy, but also to engage the international community differently to fracture any potential coalitions and then to refine and redefine its defense doctrine so that it would rely more on missiles and non-conventional partners to compete with the United States. But by 2004, the situation had changed dramatically. Iran faced a much more positive strategic picture. Its most hated enemies, Saddam and the Taliban, were both gone. The replacement regimes were weak, chaotic. American forces were present, but we were in a a hurry to leave, and the public debate in America was becoming toxic on the idea of a war in the Middle East. But worst of all for us, the U.S. was unable to introduce stability in Iraq. The U.S. response to Iran's increasingly successful efforts during this period to build a substantial political influence in, in Iraq and to some extent in Afghanistan generally involved diplomatic protests and very rare detention and arrests of Iranian proxies uh, uh, or, or let alone Iranian officials. And these were all released very quickly. But at the same time, there were actually American officials who sought to engage Iran to pull them into the process of resolving the difficulties we encountered in this in, in these countries. So it was a much more positive picture for Iran by 2004-2005. So Norm, my second strategic question is that I've heard you say that our failure to have a policy to deal with Iran's involvement in Iraq transformed the Middle East. Can you talk about what you mean when you say that? Sure. 
And uh, I want to be clear that I don't mean to be critical of the very smart and hardworking uh, diplomats, policymakers, and military officials who formulated those policies. Uh, indeed, at the time of the Iraq invasion, we had a general plan uh, that going into Iraq would create a, a country that would continue to act as a bulwark against Iran, Iranian expansionism, and would also offer a, an alternative to the regional Shia, uh, uh, to the militant Shia Islam being propagated by Iran itself. But the problem was that it, as it became clear that Iran's on-the-ground activities were deeply undermining Iraq's stability, and the Quds Force itself began to evolve into a new and very different organization, we had no plan to stop this. Instead, we had competing policies in which engagement and confront confrontation were each tried to some extent, but this tended to neutralize each of the policies while Iran built facts on the ground. It's sometimes said that Iran must decide whether it's a country or a cause, but I have come to the conclusion that we ourselves are unable to make that decision, and instead, by dealing with Iran both as a country and a cause, we tend to uh, be unable to develop an effective policy. Consider what was going on at the time. We had mid-level uh, diplomats meeting Iranian foreign policy, foreign ministry officials who claimed that Iran sought cooperation, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. At the same time, we had a vast amount of clandestine collection and overt reporting from military personnel and diplomats on the ground that Iran was working to assign some of the most militant Shia actors, some of whom were actual terrorists, to uh, shape the polity of Iraq itself. Some in our U.S. policy uh, world thought we should be opening a consulate in Iran at the time. Others thought we should be detaining or conducting even kinetic activities against Iran's IRGC officials in Iraq. Some people believed a grand bargain with Iran was possible. Others believed the regime was beyond redemption. Again, these discussions all involve very smart, patriotic uh, people to include from partner countries uh, who held very passionate views, but they tended to nullify each other. And in that airspace, Iran moved forward. A couple of other points. It, I think it's important we shouldn't overlook Iraq, Iraqis in this. This is not an American issue on its own. Mm -hmm. uh, many Iraqis had assured us, me, that they would have no problem maintaining stability and would stand against Iran but it became quickly clear they had overstated their capacity, they had overstated their, their ability to direct events. And in the case of some, such as the mendacious Ahmed Chalabi, the head of the Iraqi National Con uh, Congress, they were dealing with Iran itself to include the Quds Force. So throughout this period, our collection, and again, the military personnel on the ground, starts to tell us that Iran is testing our red lines and finding out that they're pink lines. And our policy, is, is to pre it prevents us from taking action against Iran because we don't want to start another war. So what happens? By 2005, Iran is routinely using proxies to kill American servicemen and eventually killed more than 600, and, and as well as wounding several thousands who are still alive in America today and suffering from their wounds. Iran also built a working relationship with al-Qaeda that enabled some of al-Qaeda's operational activity. In this way, Iran was at its most aggressive, but at the same time, um, Iran had undertaken actions to avoid a conflict. Iran mothballed its uh, covert nuclear weapons program and routinely, as I say, spoke of diplomacy. As the war 
dragged on, I think Iran realized that the U.S. and Europe would put only diplomatic obstacles in its path. Uh, we were unwilling to um, um, uh, do what was necessary to keep Iran out. We were unwilling to introduce forces aimed to confront Iran. And sort of the, the dark bacillus of Iran's influence fatally compromised Iraq's stability. And the Quds Force became a brand new creature with regional capabilities that, it, that didn't exist in the past. So, Norm, we're going to switch from the kind of strategic to the tactical here. And you've you've mentioned some of these issues. In fact, you mentioned all of these issues already, but I want to go a little deeper on them. The first is Iran's decision to stop the military aspect of its nuclear weapons program. You've already mentioned why they did that, right? Because they thought we might very well come after them. But what exactly did they stop in their nuclear program and what continued? Because I know there's some confusion around that, some confusion the intelligence community itself played into with a 2007 national intelligence estimate, which is now declassified. And the reason it was declassified was because there was so much confusion about this. So what did they stop and what did they continue? That's a great question. So I believe Iran stopped its weaponization program because they believe it was less a source of strategic protection and more a magnet for international military action um, uh, that could undermine and perhaps overthrow the regime. And what do you mean by weaponization? In essence, Iran didn't just have a program to produce electricity. They were building enriching uranium. They were uh, um, in using plutonium in a fashion to build nuclear warheads, which they would likely attach to their um, intermediate range ballistic missiles, which would allow them to target um, pretty much everything in the Middle East and uh, a number of countries up to southeastern Eastern Europe. So what Iran did was they first took undertook a significant diplomatic campaign to, to, to convince uh, Europeans in particular, that a compromise solution on the nuclear program was possible. Tehran allowed inspectors, I recall, from the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, to enter Iran. And then they pulled Russia in to complete a civilian reactor at Boucher that had been uh, under construction for many, many years. Uh, Iran intensified its diplomatic engagement in these, these years, but I never had the sense that its negotiations with the Europeans were uh, serious. Um, uh, and I, I will say I never saw a single piece of information to indicate that Iran was committed to these negotiations in a way that would lead to uh, real constraints on its nuclear program. Uh, but as to what it did with the nuclear weaponization program itself, that's really interesting. Um, Iran's goal was to retain as much of the personnel, equipment, and data capacity as possible. And I believe they did so so that were they ever to decide to build a weapon, they haven't, to my knowledge, made that decision uh, and may never make that decision, that they would be able to do so in the fastest possible manner. So they've denied the existence of the, of the militarization program. They've refused to allow any part of that program to be considered in any nuclear uh, negotiations to include in the Obama administration's nuclear deal. It maintains this position to this day. Iran dismantled and then attempted to sanitize facilities, facilities, which is very difficult and ultimately impossible to do, but Iran attempted to um, clean them so that no one could discover any evidence of a previous military program. Uh, Tehran then hid 
the um, the archives of the entire program. Uh, these archives were subsequently um, seized by Israeli intelligence. Uh, these archives are really interesting. The archives themselves don't represent a nuclear weapons program, but they're also more than just a cookbook. They're, they're, they're the directions to tell you the fastest way to do something, the records of, of what things didn't work, what efforts were not productive. So it is, it is a very important archive that the Iranians lost. But finally, perhaps most importantly, Iran moved uh, the key scientists of the program to a single organization led by the head of the former nuclear weaponization program, the late Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, recently killed by someone in, in Iran. And they put these scientists in charge of dual-use programs that would enable them to conduct what appear to be civilian activities, but also would in, in maintain their, their, their knowledge on some technologies that could be useful in a nuclear program. I don't think the Supreme Leader or Iran's IRGC, who are the ultimate decision makers on this program, Iran's president, foreign minister, have no um, decision-making influence whatsoever on the nuclear program. I, I don't think the Supreme Leader ever decided how long Iran would forego its weaponization. I think their idea was to retain as much capacity as possible until they felt they needed to make a dash for a weapon, or when we just stopped looking at the program itself. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Norm. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So Norm, just to finish up on the, the nuclear piece, the Iranians did everything you just said with the military aspects of the program, but they kept the civilian pieces, right? The enrichment of uranium going. Why did they do the latter? Well, Iran has sought nuclear power as a form of uh, domestic energy for many years. Indeed, the program began under the Shah and uh, the United States provided Iran with a research, small research reactor in the 1950s. Um, However, since the days of the Shah, the United States and others have been very wary of Iran's uh, work on this program. Uh, the Shah himself famously told, I believe, a French newspaper in the 1970s that he might himself consider a nuclear weapon. And that caused the Carter administration to place restrictions and to um, uh, uh, slow the provision of nuclear technology uh to, to, to Iran. Iran today continues um, a, a general plan that the Shah himself put forward, and that is they seek to build about 20 uh, nuclear power plants throughout the country. Uh, China is interested in, in supporting this along with uh, Russia. Uh, and uh, in some ways, this makes sense as an energy source, uh, but it does not make sense that Iran needs to enrich its own uh, uh, uranium. They can buy that elsewhere, much as, say, the United Arab Emirates has done. Um, and finally, the plutonium uh, uh, power facility they uh, 
built at Iraq, uh, frankly, appeared designed for weapons work more than for 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 uh, power generation. Okay, so the second issue, second tactical issue, Norm, um, which which you've already mentioned, is Iran's provision of sophisticated IEDs to Shia militia groups in Iraq fighting U.S. and coalition forces there. Can you talk about that a bit? What made the devices that the Iranians provided so sophisticated? Why did they do this? Over what period of time did they do this? And what was the impact? You talked about that a little bit in terms of the number of folks killed, but could you just talk about all that? Because I think it's so important. It is, and it's a it's a it, it's a very important part of the Quds Force evolution, and also says something about uh, U.S. Uh, policy at the time and since. When the war began, Iran's Quds Force flooded the country with uh, operatives from Iraqi Shia opposition elements uh, who had lived in Iran for many years and had fought against Iraq during the Iran Iraq War. This group was known as the Badr Corps. These included. Uh, uh, serious, uh, ideologically uh, reliable um, uh, uh, personnel, and they were trained in military work and political um, uh, indoctrinated to push Iran's influence in the region. Several thousand of these came into, into Iraq immediately after the invasion. All the while, Iran is sitting with our diplomats saying that they wish to cooperate with us on, um, uh, on Iraq itself. In the early days, uh, Iran provided these personnel with uh, small arms and uh, uh, sort of basic military gear to allow them to push their way into the Shia communities and take charge. But over time, Iran began to uh, provide them with improvised explosive devices. The explosively formed projectiles, the EFPs, represented a significant shift. So an EFP, an explosively formed penetrator or projectile, is in essence, imagine a tin can with a concave copper plate at one end that when detonated becomes a molten slug of copper. And this copper travels at a very high speed and can penetrate uh, the armor of uh, pretty much any arm armored vehicle we used at the time to include our M1 tank. It's a standoff weapon. It can be detonated remotely. It, 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 it's, it produces mass, mass casualties. Uh, it it uh, not only killed many American personnel, but the wounds are horrific. Think burns, think amputations. Um, the Quds Force manufactured these in, in Iran. They require very careful machining to ensure that their punch is, is maximized and smuggled those into country and distributed them around the country. I, I should say the Quds Force introduced another weapon um, uh, after this, uh, and the, the EFPs began appearing about 2004, 2005. Uh, shortly after this, they also introduced something called an improvised rocket-assisted munition, an IRAM. And this involved placing large oxygen cylinders on, on rocket motors, the 107-millimeter rockets, um, and they filled these uh, oxygen cylinders with bulk, bulk explosives and ball bearings, firing them at a relatively short distance, again, to cause uh, mass casualties. Uh, our U.S. military devoted a lot of time and energy and intelligence work to uh, identifying locations of these um, devices, the, uh, pr the distributors of these devices, and some work uh, to uh, close off the border to make it more difficult for Iran to introduce them. But that was never uh, particularly effective in my view. And Norm, why do you think... 
Why do you think we didn't respond more strongly than we did? Here, the Iranians, we knew the Iranians, you know, with, with as much certainty as you can muster in the intelligence business, that the Iranians were killing American soldiers. Why don't, why don't you believe either the Bush or Obama administration reacted more strongly? That's a, that's a very difficult question. Uh, I sat in the room on a number of to- occasions with uh, Presidents Bush and Obama. Uh, they, and the entire policy leadership, our military leadership, were certainly aware of what was happening in Iran's responsibility. Uh, I think several factors go into play into their non-action. First, uh, the American public was not interested in another war in the Middle East. Second, um, there was this competing policy of if we engage the Iranians, we can deal with them as a country, whereas the intelligence and the on-the-ground activities showed that they were performing as a cause. And those discussions, as you will recall from the many meetings we attended together in Washington, can seem to go on go on forever. Yeah. Um, I think I, I should say that the end of the Bush administration uh, President Bush did authorize a much more aggressive policy against um, Iran. Uh, but um, by the time the Obama administration came to power, um, um, this had not yet been put together. And the Obama administration, much like every administration since 1979, has come to power saying, we're different. We will be seen as different. We'll try to turn a new page and we'll try to approach things differently. Um, but I think this was a, this was a mistake. And the reason I think it's a mistake is uh, is there's an issue of groupthink here as well. Let me go back to your book, The Great War on Terror, where you were pretty open about groupthink in the intelligence community on terrorism. We have, I've seen a groupthink develop that whatever we do against Iran will result in greater losses against the United States. Mm. And whatever your views are on the Trump administration, the activities of the past year have shown that has not been the case. It doesn't predict future activity. I'm just basing it off the last year's data. So there has been a there was a sense that uh, we need to uh, uh, prevent Iraq from getting worse uh, at a time of enormous instability, and taking Iran on would um, would risk further instability in Iraq itself. And our American military personnel, uh, whom we were trying to withdraw, would be placed at risk uh, as a result. And, and and again, how many killed by EFPs? You said six hundred. About six hundred and three. That's the conservative estimate estimate that was declassified by the Department of Defense. But I need to underscore that several thousand were wounded. Uh, these heroic Americans are still among us with their wounds from Iraq, and uh, Iraq Iran got away with it. And I think that's an important part of this dynamic because Iran saw that we would take losses that any other country would either uh, respond to with with fast withdrawal or declaration of war. And we would just absorb these losses and keep going with, with our policy as it was in Iraq. And I think this taught the, uh, the Quds Force and Iran's leadership um, a very dark lesson. And that is that America's red lines uh, can be pink lines. Uh, and indeed, if you look at the history of America's responses to Iran, 
um, Iran's terrorism, Iran's act, killing of Americans at Khobar under the Clinton administration, um, the deaths of Americans in Iraq, the attempt to kill uh, then Saudi ambassador Adel Jaber. We generally respond with diplomatic activity or, or sanctions, which mean nothing to the Quds Force and the people involved in, in this, uh, these operations. So, Norm, um, the third specific issue I want to talk about, which you've already mentioned too, is Iran's handling of al-Qaeda during this period. So even before the invasion, they were allowing some transit, as you mentioned. But what impact did the U.S. invasion of Iraq have on the way the Iranians dealt with al-Qaeda? So following the uh, American uh, attack on Taliban elements and al-Qaeda elements in Afghanistan, Thousands of al-Qaeda operatives fled uh, the camps, the al-Qaeda camps, and flowed into Iran Iran itself. They were detained by the Iranians. They were sometimes fingerprinted. They were briefly um, interrogated. And then they were sent on their way. Iran also maintained, um, allowed al-Qaeda's entire leadership council to live with their families in Mashhad, um, uh, Iran, for some time. Now, I want you to imagine after 9-11, had Iran said to the world, these people have come into our territory, we're going to turn them over to their home countries or Interpol. We're going to um, uh, allow the the West to do what it needs to do to kill al-Qaeda. What that would have done to the war on terror, what that would have done to Iran's relationship with the world. Instead, these people went out. Many of them became uh, a propagandist. They've trained. They trained others. They raised funds. Um, they're they're now located in areas ranging. They they went on to areas ranging from Iraq and Syria to to the, to the Sahara. So this is a problem we have today that began then. Since that time, um, as a result of some international pressure, Iran detained under the loosest conditions. Al-Qaeda's leadership council has gradually released a number of them without telling anybody where they're going. Um, and Iran has enabled some facilitators, according to public information put out by the United States government repeatedly, to operate from within Iran. This is un- I, 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 it's inexplicable to me that, that the world has allowed this to happen uh, when we talk about a war on terror, but we have a country which has provided so much safe haven to al-Qaeda itself. But again, most importantly to me, it also says Iran had an opportunity to transform its relationship with the West, and it failed to do so. So Norm, let's switch directions a bit here as we as we near the end of the episode. And this episode is going to run just after uh, Joe Biden takes office on January 20th. And, and I would not want to lose the opportunity to talk with you about what is likely to happen between Iran and the United States going forward. And, you know, in that context, what does, what does the U S want here? What does Iran want and how do you see the relationship going forward? And perhaps a way to link the history that we just talked about to the present and where we go from here is how did the Iraq experience change Iranian policy? How did we respond to that? And what does that mean for, for, what President Biden is going to try to do? How do you think about all that? That's a that's a that's a lot. That's a lot. So let me begin by saying something that that in our hyper partisan environment may not be easily accepted, but U.S. policy against Iran has been remarkably consistent since 1979, and it will likely continue under a Biden administration to follow the same pillars. We don't want a regional war with 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 Iran. 
Uh, we want to employ um, long-term corrosive sanctions to convince Iran's leadership to alter its decision-making on, on security issues. We will empower regional allies with a defensive capacity or intelligence support to the extent that we, perhaps not they, but we believe sufficient to defend themselves. And finally, we will try to work with a generally unenthusiastic European and United Nations community to build a coalitions against Iran. That's kind of, I think, the framework of where the Biden administration will go as well. But in essence, what the Biden administration is looking for is Iran to normalize its relationship um, in the region and with its nuclear program. I uh, think that will be difficult. And, And how do you think the Iranians are thinking about coming at this? Are there differences in Iran? Again, one of the differences between ourselves and the Iranians is that we tend to replace our our leadership every few years, sometimes more frequently than that. Iran's leadership stays in place for decades. Iran's current supreme leader sat in his chair since 1989. He has seen our playbook over and over. Engagement, confrontation, engagement, confrontation. Iran seeks broadly regional hegemony and treatment by the great powers is an equal. Iran loves to be in a room with the uh, UN Security Council leadership uh, dealing on uh, discussing regional issues and nuclear issues. In the near term, they're going to seek uh, a nuclear deal that does several things. First, I believe they'll they'll seek to maintain a capability in, in a civilian program that could allow them to build a nuclear weapon should they ever decide to do so. And I stress they may never decide to do so. But retention of that cash that I mentioned earlier of documents from their nuclear weapons program tells you that their leadership had an intent that maybe they would one day build a weapon. Secondly, I think they want permanent sanctions relief on key sanctions. And what I mean by that is the nuclear deal, in essence, says if in exchange for Iran's cooperation, it can sell oil, use international financial systems and repatriate the revenue from all of its exports. If you say those are protected by the nuclear deal, then you've got to wonder what are the sanctions tools of any impact should Iran conduct a massive terrorist attack or a missile attack? Finally, mm-hmm. Iran wants to make sure the nuclear deal does touches no hardline equity. It doesn't impinge their activities in the region. It doesn't cut funds to their missile program. And it doesn't, it doesn't introduce a cultural contagion that undermines the re- regime's ideological soundness. Norm, if you could give President Biden one piece of advice as he f- tries to figure out how to deal with Iran, what would it be? President-elect Biden is extremely experienced. I have sat in the room with him and listened to him speak dozens, if not hundreds of hours, as of you, on, on, on this issue. And I don't think he needs any advice. But to the greater polity, I would say that... Uh, Uh, the most common mistake or characteristic, maybe that's a better word, I've seen repeated over the years is in every administration, there are those who believe things are going to be different. And they believe it because maybe they are, they have great stature. They they are a new general. They are a new secretary of state. They have some accent. They've known Iranians or they speak some Persian. Um, Inevitably, they come from, come to the engagement with a sense that they can fix this. And here's the danger. If you're not careful, the process of engagement becomes the product. And those who are engaged in that process become very unwilling to, to walk away. 
And then mm. as the process stalls, suddenly it's now a request for additional sanction, additional concessions. Because usually when we approach negotiations, we say, we'll make a concession to start things instead of saying, the Iranians have to make a concession to start things. And inevitably, we learn that those with whom we speak diplomatically have absolutely no influence whatsoever over Iran's missile program, its terrorist program, its proxy program, or indeed the direction of the country under its most significant leadership. So I think I would I would focus on um, um, uh, a negotiation that has us uh, uh, arriving with the capacity to walk away and not be too anxious for a deal. Norm, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a great discussion. Thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure. That was Norm Rule. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.